The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. Morning. I'm, I'm thankful that we were able to worship together and sing together. Um, and, and in fact, we're starting a new series today called Messy Church. Um, and, and it gives us this picture of togetherness. We are one. We are together as a church. But there's a, there's a reality there that, that we need to talk about. We're going to use the book of Ephesians together over the next five weeks um, to help us kind of wrap our heads around this picture. And so I want to start today by asking you a question. Anybody in here, are you a good host? Do you like to host things at your home? Maybe you like that party, you have people over for dinner and all this other stuff. Maybe, maybe you're a good host. I know my wife and I, um, we, uh, we really enjoy having people to our home. We really enjoy uh, uh, hosting people to our home. And uh, if you come to our house, one of the things that you'll see, uh, if, you, if we invite you over, that is, if you come to our house for an event or a party or whatever, you'll go, wow. This is like a clean house. Like I could never tell that four kids live here or have ever walked through here before. And it just looks all put together. And we want you to think that, okay? We want you to really believe that that's true. And so you look at it and it's all put together. But is it really that way? No, it's still messy. In fact, don't open any closed door. That's what I'll tell you. If you come to my house and it's clean, don't open any closed door because you might die. Everything might fall out of there and just crush you. Uh, like our, our bedroom stays locked for a reason when people come to our house because everything else imaginable is in there, like living or dead or inanimate, it's all in there. And so we like that appearance that everything's okay. I, I had a friend over um, one time, he, he just happened to be near the house, so he called and said he was coming over and he made a comment to me. He, he like kind of walked in. He's like, wow. And I said, what? And he said, like, every time I've been to your house, it's been really put together. And now it's like, it's like messy. And I was like, well, you won't come to my house again. Thanks for that. But, but his point was that, you know, every other time we've been prepared and we wanted our house to look a certain way. But the reality was, it was it's kind of messy. And why is it messy? Because real people live there, okay? Like we don't have a model home. We don't live in a shed in the backyard, okay? And then we just host things in the, uh, in the house. We really live there. And so we have four little kids who live there and just mess things up. And my wife has a husband who just lives there and messes things up. Okay. We're real people. So it's messy. And the same thing with our church, our church, we like to appear like everything's neat and clean and just going great. And, and I don't mean in, in our appearance. Okay. I don't, I don't mean necessarily that uh, because try as hard as I can, this is about as good as it gets. Okay. So maybe it's not appearance, but we like to appear like our, all of our ministries are clicking and everybody's getting along and, and, and nobody, no, there's no conflict here. We're all smiling and happy. In fact, I was uh, talking to a friend of mine about this series and he started to recall something that I relate to and probably everybody who, if you grew up in church, you relate to this, where you would drive to church and your parents would be arguing and you'd be arguing with them and then they would threaten your life and then you would get in the church parking lot and then everybody would pop out and just be all smiles and just love Jesus, happy to be here, right? Like, we do the same thing in our church, but our church really, I mean, it's, it's messy. Why is it messy? Because there are real people here. We have real people with their real quirks and their real hangups and their real idiosyncrasies and their, all, all the things that make us us are here. They're really here. And so our church can be messy because people aren't perfect. It doesn't matter how much we try to put that out there, that we got it all going on, that everything is fine. We aren't perfect. I had a roommate in college who... 
Um, one of the things that, if you were to meet him, one of the things that you would say is he has beautiful teeth. Do you know anybody like that? Like, like you know, you don't just say, like, they have a beautiful smile. You're like, I, I would write a song about his teeth if I could. They were just, they're perfect, right? They're just absolutely perfect. And, and he's just, if you are talking about him and someone goes, who? And you go, perfect teeth. They're like, oh, yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. Like, that's him. And so, actually, this week I called him. I said, hey, I want to talk about your perfect teeth in church but I have to know, have you ever had a cavity? And he very like, it was like he was ashamed. He said, yeah, this year. And he was just really like defeated. And I said, thank you, thank you. That really helps me. I said, your, your cavity will help illustrate to people how we are not perfect. And so even though we try to appear perfect, nobody's perfect. We don't have it all together. We have temptations, we have sins, we have weaknesses. And so people are messy because they're not perfect. And people are messy because they're vulnerable. Now, I don't mean that we're vulnerable to necessarily to, to certain people, certain situations. What I'm talking about is we're vulnerable to the enemy's attack. The scripture is clear that we have an enemy and he's like a roaring lion, right? He's, he's prowling around looking for someone to devour. And so our enemy hates us. He hates the Lord Jesus and he hates his bride. He wants to dismantle us and disrupt us and tear us apart. Um, and it, it happens here. It happens here every Sunday morning. Something happens where he's trying to disrupt us coming together and worship and, and hearing from God. And, and so he's trying to do these things. And, and how does he do it? How does he attack our church? Well, I believe he starts where the book of Ephesians starts, and this is what we're going to look at today. I think he starts with our identity. He starts with our identity. Identity is incredibly important in God's church because how strong is a group of people filled with those who aren't sure they belong there, filled with those who aren't sure uh, what other people think about them, aren't, or filled with those who aren't sure about their future there, filled with those who aren't sure if they're safe there. Identity is so important. How strong is a church filled with those in the middle of an identity crisis? Pretty weak. And the enemy knows that. So he attacks our identity. And we know this. Everybody in here knows what it's like to have your identity attacked by the enemy. And I'm not talking about he opened credit cards in your names or anything like that. What I mean is, which I wish, I don't know, I wish someone would. Maybe you didn't prove my credit score. But, but I, what I'm talking about is, is our, enemy, our enemy attacking who we understand ourselves to be. The enemy attacking uh, our view of ourselves, right? So maybe you hear those whispers, you know, he starts to attack you and say, you're not a good parent. You know, you're not lovable. You're lazy. You're untalented. Maybe he brings up the past. He brings up mistakes and, and things that are places of deep regret and deep shame for you and throws those in your face. And maybe he starts to make you doubt whether or not you even belong in God's family. And the enemy also attacks how we think God views us. And so we start to think, I'm so unfaithful, I'm such a screw up. Ephesians 2, 3 says, we used to be children of wrath. He must still be angry with me for the things that I've done and continue to do. I can't truly be forgiven. I can't truly be accepted by him. And this identity crisis can crush us, absolutely devastate us. And when you think about it, we run from God out of fear when we suffer these identity crises. I don't know how he feels about me. I don't know how to relate to him. I just need to stay away from him. We are start running away from one another out of shame. If they knew what I know about me, if they knew the things that I've done, where I've come from, and this happens to everyone. It happens to all of us. So what do we do? What do we do? 
If the enemy's trying to dismantle us, disrupt what the church is trying to do, and he's going to come after our identities, what do we do? How do we help ourselves? How do we help others struggling with identity crisis? And here it is. If the enemy speaks lies, then speak the truth. And so here's your answer. Tell yourself and others the truth. Tell yourself and others the truth. Before Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to to fast and, and to pray and also to be tempted. And while he's out there, the enemy meets with him and he tempts him and he tempts Jesus to serve himself and even serve the enemy. And Jesus counters these temptations with truth. And my favorite is when the enemy comes to him and he says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. When was the last time you were really hungry? I mean, like really hungry. Maybe you forgot to eat. Maybe you're just too busy. You know, have you ever done that? You got home and you're just like, man, why am I so hungry? And you realize you didn't eat lunch or maybe you didn't eat breakfast either that day. And it was just so busy or for whatever reason you didn't eat. What happens when you smell something good or people start talking about food? What happens? You're thinking, I will do whatever it takes to get that food, right? And they start talking about McDonald's, even though you hate McDonald's, immediately in your brain, I want to go to there, right? Like you just want it, you want food, it doesn't matter, I'll run over you, Uh, I'll do whatever I have to do to get something to eat. And so Jesus has been in the wilderness 40 days, he hasn't eaten, okay, he's out there, he hasn't eaten for a long, long time, and the enemy says, hey, look, if you're really the son of God, just tell these these stones to turn into bread. And could Jesus do that? Absolutely he could. He gets this message, he gets this temptation here to do that. And Jesus' body wants that bread probably more than any of us have ever wanted anything before. But how does Jesus combat this temptation uh, to, uh, to serve himself with this miracle? He combats it with the truth. Jesus told him, no, the scripture says, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Regardless of how Jesus feels in that moment, regardless of how convincing the enemy's argument might have been to him in that moment, Jesus speaks the truth. He tells himself the truth. And we will all face identity crises. We will all face times where the enemy comes at us and he attacks our very understanding of ourselves and our feelings, our feelings will tell us what he's saying is true. Our feelings will betray us. Maybe our memories will betray us. All these different things, all these different thoughts in our minds will betray us. But we combat that the same way Jesus did, which is we speak the truth. So what's the truth? What in the world is the truth about who you and I are in Jesus? If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians 1. Turn to Ephesians 1. We're going to be there. Ephesians 1 through 2 tens. where we're going to be today. And I hope that the Lord's going to use these words here in Ephesians to renew some people. I hope he's going to use these words to, um, to, to, to help some people understand who they are in him today. So who are we in Jesus? Let's find that out today. First, we are redeemed. We are redeemed. Look there in verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption through blood. This word redeemed, I don't, our redemption, I don't know if, if we use that very often. The only time I think I ever use that word redemption is when I'm like redeeming uh, a punch card or something to get a free Chick-fil-A sandwich or whatever it is. So what does that mean, redemption? It's defined as release affected by payment of ransom. 
So it's this picture of you are held by something, you are captive, you aren't free, and then you're released because a ransom has been paid. And this is true of us. We were held by sin. In Ephesians 2, 5, it says we were dead in our sin, meaning we couldn't have a spiritual life at all. We couldn't have a relationship with God at all. We were spiritually dead, spiritually numb to who God was. We were held, we were held just waiting to face the wrath of God. That's what Ephesians 3 tells us, or 2, 3 tells us. We were children of wrath. That's what was waiting for us. So all we could do was sit there and wait. We were being held by our sin, waiting for that penalty to fall on us, waiting for the wrath of God. But this says we have redemption through his blood. Jesus' sacrifice has set us free. The ransom of Jesus has set us free. We are free. Look at Ephesians 2, look 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. We are free. We are forgiven. God has given us a gift of freedom because of what Jesus has done. The penalty has been paid. It will not be paid Again, it has been paid in full and you and I are free in Jesus. Look at verse 13 of chapter one. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it through the praise of his glory. We are redeemed. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. There is no going back. We are redeemed. There's this podcast that I like to listen to called Wrongful Conviction, and it's put on by this organization, this nonprofit organization that uh, tries to overturn wrongful convictions. And so the podcast is just stories of people who served time in prison uh, when they were actually innocent. And they had this man on who served 20 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And one of the things he talked about was when he got out, having this fear that they were going to come get him and put him back. Having this fear that they were gonna come back to him and they were gonna say, actually, the things that exonerated you, they weren't true and you need to come back with us. He said he would walk his dog and he would just be looking over his shoulder, terrified if he heard sirens thinking, they're coming for me They're gonna put me back there. And he knew he was innocent. They had proven he was innocent. It didn't matter. He had this fear that he's going back. And at times you might feel the exact same way. And that's how the way way that the enemy attacks you. He brings up your sin that you've done before. He brings up the sin that you just did. And he says, well, you can't, surely you can't belong to him. Surely you aren't redeemed. You aren't forgiven. Surely that what the, the work that God does for others, he hasn't done for you because look, at you. Christians don't act that way. They don't think that way. They don't talk that way. They don't, they don't take care of themselves in that way. Instead, you tell yourself the truth. You say, I am redeemed, not because of what I have done, but because of the ransom paid by the blood of Jesus, paid once and paid for all. That's it. There is no more. There is no going back. I am redeemed. That's the first part of who we are. I love that. There's a quote by Martin Luther I've used before, but it's my favorite, so I'll use it again. Here's what he said. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, son of God, and where he is there I shall be also. We are redeemed. That is who we are. 
When the enemy whispers in your ear and says, no, you are not. When the enemy whispers in your ear and he says, you are not worthy of it. There is no way that a real Christian, a real follower of Jesus would act that way, talk that way, do those things. You tell yourself the truth. I am redeemed. Not because of what I've done. It's a gift of God. It's because of the blood of Jesus. I am redeemed. The second thing, we've been lovingly adopted. Look at verse four through five there in chapter one. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I love this picture of adoption and and adoption in our day and age might be a tad bit different than the first century. If you look at a first century adoption like Caesar Augustus who adopted his grand nephew Octavius, uh, it wasn't because he didn't have children. He did have children. It wasn't because uh, uh, his children didn't have a good relationship with them or, or whatever. Ju- uh, uh, Caesar Augustus didn't believe that his children were worthy enough to, to, to inherit his kingdom, to inherit his power and his rule. He thought Octavius was worthy enough. He thought that he would, he would be able to get something out of Octavius. His name would be honored by Octavius, so he gave it to him. And God says to us, with this first century understanding, I've adopted you. Now, can we offer God anything? Can we earn that opportunity to carry his name? Can any of us carry it in a worthy manner outside of his help and the Holy Spirit's strength? No. So what's the reason behind our election? Look there in verse four again. In love, he predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. We are adopted because of his love and his will. We're adopted not because of us, not because of who we are or what we've done or what we will do. We've been adopted by Jesus because he loves us. Why does he love us? Because he does, because of himself, because he is love. And we've been lovingly adopted. It reminds me of this family I read about, the Dennehy family. They had three children and they thought that's a big family and that's enough. And then they saw this video of this boy who needed a family, needed to be adopted. He had no arms. So they went and they adopted this boy with these special needs. They had no idea what challenges were ahead of them, but they adopted him. And then they kept adopting and they adopted many, many more children with disabilities. They adopted a little girl from, uh, uh, from China with no arms and no legs. They adopted another little girl from China with no arms. They adopted all of these children with disabilities. They ended up adopting nine other children. So they ended up with 12 children. Most of their children now have special needs. And here's what he said. Adoption is sort of a model of what God does for us. We're all pretty messed up. And then God says, it's all right. I'm gonna rescue you and bring you into my family. We just try to tell everybody that adoption on earth is just like the adoption that's coming later. Love motivated them to adopt. It wasn't what these children could do for them. It's what they could give to these children. In the same way, God looks at you and he looks at me and he says, I love you. Not because of what you've done or what you can do for me, but because I love you. It's not about what you can give to me. It's about what I can give to you. We are adopted because we are supremely loved. Look there in chapter two, verse four through five again. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love 
with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. What does it say there? We were dead in our sin. How much? How many people you've been around somebody who's passed on? What do the dead do for themselves? Nothing. What can they give back to you? Nothing. And it says, well, we were dead in our sins. Completely just, we had no feeling towards God. We had no relationship with God. Completely numb, completely dead, completely cut off. It says, I, he loved us anyway, and he came and made us alive. He is the only uh, true agent there in our rescue. And think about how loving it is to be adopted by God. I mean, it would have been loving for him to say, you know what? I'm going to rescue you from your sin, and I'm going to make you my slave. I'd accept that. He says, or, or I'm going to rescue you from your sin. I'm going to make you a part of my house. But instead, he says, you are my children. You're my sons and my daughters. I mean, why does God use that language? Because he's trying to get us to understand how we relate to him. That's the kind of love he has for us is that he says, I don't want you to be far away. I don't want you to just be in my house. I want you to be with me. And that's what it says there in Ephesians 1, that he's revealed this mystery to us of his plan to unite all things to himself. And so he's drawing us in. He's saying, you're my children. You're my children. I love that picture of the, the prodigal son, the parable Jesus tells about this, this son who, who runs away from his father, basically wishes he's dead, runs away from his father, and then comes home, and he's going to beg his father to just be a, a servant in his household. And what does the father do? He runs to his boy, and he falls on his boy, and he, he weeps, and he kisses his boy, and he fully restores him. And, and now this son gets to enjoy the joy of the father for the rest of his time in his household. And the same is for true for you and me. We haven't been brought into a church, a, a religion, some sort of some sort of religious ideology. We are now children of God. God lavishes his love on us and says, I love you. You are mine. That's the picture he gives. It's a picture of loving adoption. So when the enemy attacks your identity and he says, you are worthless, you are good for nothing, you are forever broken. You are a liar. You're just some religious hypocrite. You're a sinner that no one would want. You tell yourself the truth. I am deeply loved. I am a child of God. I may fail. I may sin. I may make mistakes, but I am a child of God, lovingly chosen by God to be in his family. I'm a child of God. The third thing about us, we are forever blessed. Look there in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not earthly blessings. They don't last. Our popularity, our fame, our money, our power, our pleasure, all of those things are fleeting and we know it. They don't last but spiritual blessings last they're kept safe in the heavenly places and they're what we need for joy and we experience those now we have the peace of God now that's a spiritual blessing we have salvation we've been brought to life uh, from death to life that's a spiritual blessing we experience now the a relationship with God now but here's what it says look look what it says every spiritual blessing 
is ours in Christ Jesus. Everyone. So all the goodness that God has for us is ours in Christ Jesus. That is what we get to experience now, and that's what we have to look forward to. Every spiritual blessing. Verse 11 of chapter 1 says, we've obtained an inheritance. What is that inheritance? Well, it's a lot of things, and how do I narrow it down? Well, I, I don't know. But, but I think we have a hint in the scriptures of what that inheritance is. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, it says this, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There's an eternal glory that he's talking about. This is our future blessing with God. And it says that, that in comparison to that, the troubles we experience now are light and momentary. And you say, well, what troubles were they experiencing? They were being killed. There's horrible injustices, sexual assaults, torture, losing their livelihoods, losing their families, being a, a laughing stock in front of their entire culture. And this, this verse says that in comparison to what is to come, these things are light and momentary. That's what awaits us. That's how we are forever blessed. That the most horrible things, the most horrible injustices that this world could throw at us, they are light and momentary, not even worth being compared to the eternal weight of glory that's being prepared for us. Now get ready to have your mind blown. To go to chapter two, look at verse six to seven. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at verse seven so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The kindness of God right now is all over us. I mean, when you think about it, think about what you have in this life. That's the kindness of God. We doubt him and yet he still continues to provide. We, we, we speak against him and yet he still provides air in our lungs I forget him so many times. There'll be days I'll, I'll, I'll get through the entire day. I haven't, I haven't even spoken to him, and yet he's blessed me over and over and over again throughout the day. If we were to stop and to think about the fact that all good things come from him and that he holds all things together, if we were to stop and think that way and then try to measure his kindness toward us, we wouldn't be able to. We, we could spend the rest of time sitting here just naming off his kindnesses to us over and over and over again. But this says, look in verse 7, this says that in the coming ages, those are the ages to come on into infinity over and over and over again, he will show us the riches of his grace that are immeasurable in kindness in Christ Jesus. He, I can't even begin to describe to you the blessings that God has for us. They're immeasurable. There's no metric. I can't wrap my head around it, but that's what's waiting for us. That's what God is pouring out on us. We have access to this immeasurable uh, kindness and grace in Christ Jesus. And you know what? You know what the enemy's going to say to you? that you aren't blessed. He's gonna point to earthly things that you don't have and say that you aren't blessed. He's gonna point to a failing health or, or, or some sort of hurt in your family and he's gonna say, you aren't blessed. You don't have enough. You tell yourself the truth. 
I am forever blessed. The Lord now has poured out his kindness on me by making me his child. And for the rest of time, he will continually pour out and display the riches of his grace and kindness towards me in Christ Jesus. I might not have this, I might not have that, but I have the immeasurable riches of God in Christ Jesus. I'm forever blessed, forever blessed. The fourth thing is that we have purpose. Look there at the very last verse there in chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, if we were to look in Romans and Corinthians, and e- I mean, even in Ephesians, it mentions at one time that, that we're the body of Christ. That's the picture we get. That we are all together, united in this body of Christ. And one of the things I've heard someone say before, but it always sticks in my brain and I like it. It says that um, we've all been called in the body of Christ. We're a part of the body of Christ. He hasn't called anybody to be the appendix, right? Meaning that he hasn't called anybody to not have a purpose in his kingdom. He hasn't called anybody to not have a purpose in this new life that he's given us. In fact, you know, we don't talk a lot about destiny when it comes to, to, to our faith. We don't like to use that word. Usually the only time you hear destiny is maybe you watch a trailer for the new Spider-Man movie or something. You know, he was destined to be bitten by a spider and save the world, right? We don't like to use that word. But look at the scripture here. It says that that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. God prepared good works for you beforehand. Before what? Before there was a before. God prepared good works for you. God had a purpose for you before there was a before, before the before. Before all that, God prepared a purpose for you. And what does that mean? This means that God has made you and called you to do good works that he's designed for you to do. So the enemy's gonna try to stop us. He doesn't want us to work on the behalf of the kingdom. He doesn't want us to work to spread God's message. So what's he gonna do? He's gonna whisper to us and say, you aren't talented enough. You don't have enough training. You haven't been a believer long enough. You've actually messed up way too much for anyone to take you seriously in your family or at work or whatever. You just need to keep your mouth shut. Or you know what? You've done your time. You've worked hard. It's time for you to relax. You don't have enough experience. You're too young. You're to this, you're to that. You tell yourself the truth. As long as there are breath, there's breath in my lungs, there are good works that he's prepared for me to do. And that's true for all of us. He's placed you in your family to do good works. He's placed you in your workplace to do good works. He's placed you in your sphere of influence. He's placed you in your neighborhood. He's given you the friends he's given you. He's given you the enemies he's given you for good works. He's brought you to the season of your life for good works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a lady in our church who I love dearly. She's, uh, she's in her 90s, so she's just now getting started. Uh, but she's in her 90s, and she says that every day she goes to bed, and, and then when she wakes up, she says, okay, Lord, I'm still here. What do you want me to do? That's her attitude. Okay, Lord, I'm still here. What do you want me to do? Where does that come from? 
It comes from the fact that she doesn't have an identity crisis. She knows who she is. She knows that she's been created to have a purpose in Christ Jesus. If there's breath in her lungs, then she's here for his purposes. There's work for her to do. So when the enemy attacks your identity, tell yourself the truth. Oh, me? Yeah, I'm redeemed once and for all. Oh, me? I've been lovingly adopted. I'm a child of God. Me? I'm forever blessed with the measurable riches of his grace. Me? I have a purpose. I've been designed for good works. I heard a story this week that I really liked. I'd like to close with this. Um, Does anybody know who Justin Welby is? He's currently the um, Archbishop of Canterbury. And there were rumors recently, just the past few years, circling about his father, about whether his father, Gavin Welby, was really his father or not. Um, and he, he was very close to his father. He lived with his father after his parents divorced. Um, and so he's very close to his father. But his father has since then passed away. And so these rumors are circulating. So he finally agreed, I'll get a DNA test. We'll get this settled once and for all. And turns out his father was not his father. His mother and his father uh, hadn't told him the truth. And now they were gone. Can you imagine that? This person that, I mean, he went and lived with him like this was, this was my dad. This is all that I know. And then to find out he's not really your father. He's not really where you come from. The decisions you thought your parents made, they didn't make. There were other decisions made. You come from a different place. Not only that, but now they're gone. You can't even talk to them. You can't even have a, a conversation about it. And then he finds out he has a stepsister somewhere that he doesn't know. He has a family out there that he doesn't know. Do you know what his response was? Here's what he said in an interview after he got the results. There is no existential crisis and no resentment against anyone. My identity is founded in who I am in Christ. His identity isn't wrapped up in his family or his circumstances. His identity is wrapped up in Jesus. And he allows the truth of what Jesus says about him to define him. Not what others say, not what his feelings say, not what circumstances say, but what Jesus says. And he quoted Colossians 3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are his. It doesn't matter how I feel or what the enemy says, I am redeemed. It doesn't matter how I feel or what others say, you are a child of God. It doesn't matter how you feel or or what others have or what you don't have, you are forever blessed in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter how you feel or what others say, you have a purpose in Christ. That's who we are and nothing will change that. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for our time here together. I thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to celebrate who we are in you. Lord, I know that um, I know that everyone here has experienced this identity crisis. We've all been attacked from the enemy. We've all been attacked with our understanding of, am I really yours? Am I really not? We've all been attacked with um, feelings of discontentment and feelings of insecurity. But God, my prayer today is that for those who are currently in that crisis, that God, they would stand firm today. That God, they would tell themselves the truth of what you showed us here and your word in Ephesians, and that they would stand firm today. 
I pray that for my brothers and sisters who aren't experiencing an identity crisis, Lord, that they would be equipped to help others, to tell them the truth, and that they would be equipped because the day will come. The day will come when they're the ones under the attack. The day will come where they have those dark thoughts, those dark moments. May they remember your word. May they combat the lies of the enemy with the truth of your word. May they combat the lies of their feelings with the truth of your word. May they combat the lies of their circumstances with the truth of your word. We are redeemed. We are deeply loved. Children of God. Blessed forever. And have much work to do in the kingdom. God, just solidify that identity for us this morning. Lord, now we get to come to your table and remember your body broken, remember your blood poured out for us. God, it's appropriate we're talking about identity this morning. Because without your body broken, without your blood poured out, we don't have the identity we talked about. We have wrath. We have death. But you came. Our rescuer came. And you looked at us in our helpless state. You looked at us when we were dead. And you said, I love you. I will give everything to rescue you. And I'll make you alive. We don't deserve that love I know your word gives us the word grace but it seems too small at times when we think about what you've done for us so God all we can do we can't try to understand it all we can do is celebrate it and just tell you thank you Thank you for your blood poured out. Thank you for your body broken for me. We're dead without you. We're lost without you. Thank you for your rescue. So God, this morning, we come to your table with grateful hearts. We come to your table remembering that we're deeply loved by a God who sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross so that we could live. So God, we come this morning grateful. May this time put a smile on your face as we celebrate. It's in Jesus' name.
Amen.